Well, good morning. We want to welcome you to our live worship service here at Central City Church. If you are new with us, we want to uh, encourage you in your worship of the Lord. We want to thank you for joining us wherever you're at right now, from a, a couch or, or driving in your car, wherever you may be. Uh, we've got a free gift for you. If you uh, log into our website, you'll see a, a newcomer uh, uh, tab there that you can fill out some information. We'd love to send you a free gift. Uh, share with you is Pastor Joe sent an email out several weeks ago, and I want to remind everybody that on August 30th, we are going to be having a live worship service in the park. More details to follow. We've got several weeks before this happens, but we're going to be meeting in an outdoor park here in Columbus, and it will be the first time that we have been together in a community as a, as a whole community since this pandemic begun, so it'll surely be a raucous uh, time of worship. And then the last thing I want to mention is offering. Uh, we are sustained as a church by your generous and faithful uh, gifts. If you can do this in multiple different ways, you can text uh, to the number on the screen right now, or if you're a regular giver, we, we want to uh, thank you for your faithful giving there. Um, I want to transition to the teaching time. Uh, I'm Baron Miller. This is the last week I'll be filling in. Pastor Joe will be back next week. And uh, this started out series titled Love in a Dangerous Time. And it was meant to be a three-week series on marriage and relationships, focusing on the marriage relationship. But I'm trying to make every message something that everybody can draw from it. Uh, last week was the second sermon and we had some technological issues. If you, if you logged in for that, if a sermon did pop up, you may have noticed it was the, the first message from the first week. And so as I, I thought about what to do this week, the, the second message was some content that I really wanted to get out there. So I am going to be giving you right now the sermon that I intended to give you last Sunday. Uh, and it's a sermon titled, The Mysterious Distance. This is about intimate issues between a man and a woman dealing specifically with communication, conflict resolution, and even sex. Now, like I outlined on the first week, the challenge is to find what works for you in your own relational context. I recognize that not every listener out there is married, uh, but I do believe that everyone practices communication Everybody has conflict in their life, and everyone is a sexual being. Also, if you got kids sitting in the living room with you, this is real PG-rated stuff, so you don't have to get uh, nervous, uh, too nervous anyway. <laughs> we'll see. Um, and I want to begin by, by going back over the guiding text that I set up on week one. This is an overarching scripture that I think works really well in a, in a relational setting, in a marriage setting, but it's also a, a scripture where the Apostle Paul talks about some characteristics for just good godly living. And so I want to I read to you right now Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so I implore you, find what works for you 
in today's message. I'm going to be throwing a lot of noodles against the wall. We're going to see what sticks, all right? So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that there are many different uh, scenarios in play right now in the lives of everybody tuning in. We've got married people, single people, happily single people, divorced people, people in some relationship that is being strained and pulled, and it's quite uncomfortable. And and right now, some of our anxieties may be through the roof. And so, Heavenly Father, bring peace. Open up all of our hearts and our minds to what you have for us right now. And for me, Lord, open my lips that my mouth can bring forth your praise. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. About, oh, 2009, there was a perfect storm of events in my life. Uh, Our son, Calix, was about uh, two and a half years old. Our daughter, Eloise, was about to be born in a couple of months. I was in seminary, so uh, in a two-week period, I had a 50-page paper due, I had my in-laws visiting, which if they're listening, I love you, uh, mom and dad. Um, And uh, I was moving my home office to a Alex could move into that room so that when Eloise was born, she could move into, at the time, what was this nursery room. I had all this going on, plus I was a full-time working pastor doing weddings and funerals and preaching on the the weekends. And it was going to be this pressure cooker time of, of, of intensity and stress in my life. And I went in my home office, and on my desk was a card from my wife, Christina. And I opened the card, and in it she says, this is going to be a rough couple weeks, and I know you're going to unravel a little bit during this stress, and so I want to intentionally encourage you. And she says, I'm going to every day for the next two weeks write you a note on a three-by-five card telling you how much I appreciate you, how much I'm grateful for you, and hopefully through this encouragement, you will um, find some peace and be able to weather this storm. And I thought this is a lovely gesture. I mean, who doesn't like coming into your your home office and finding this wonderful love note from your spouse? And so as the the weeks went on and I endured all this stuff and I got all the work done and it was was a great time, um, but at the end, I realized something about myself. I had never been more encouraged and never felt more loved and and poured into than I had during those two weeks where every day my wife gave me this three by five card folded in half with the date on it and in it were these affirmations. I had thought probably like a lot of guys out there that I was a bit of an emotional camel. I could store some accolades, store some love and some affirmation in my big camel hump and just sort of wander off into the desert for, you know, years, just kind of drawing from that. I didn't realize I was depleted in this stuff, right? And so I wrote my wife a card, and I said, honey, this is so good, and I'm, I thought I was a camel, but I'm really not. And, uh, and here's what I'm going to do. For the next week, I'm going to give you a three-by-five card every day. And then at the end of that week, I want you to do it back for me again, and then I'll do it for you, and, and we'll keep going back and forth in this. And I'm telling you, we did this for about 14, maybe 15 straight months of uh, over a year of back and forth three by five cards. 
And it was this discipline that we kind of needed in our life. And, and even now, still, we pick it up and we put it down when we find that it will be particularly helpful or, or even uh, necessary for us. It's a simple idea, but it's not always easy. Can I get an amen, right? Especially for folks like me. But this is also a deeply spiritual exercise. Listen to the language of the Psalms. The psalmist, more often than not, gets God's attention with the language of praise and affirmation. And, and if that kind of language gets God's attention, how much more will that work for us as people? Especially when we're talking about communication. And that's where I want to go Number one, right away, verbal communication. I know there's physical communication and, and all of this stuff. But approaching this from a relationship standpoint, I think we can all agree that communication is a vital skill whether you are married or not. Okay? I would say that almost every married couple that has ever come into my office, and just for some context, if you don't know me, I'm a, I'm a chaplain in the Navy. I'm an active duty Navy chaplain. I'm stationed here in Columbus. Uh, but when I'm not doing the job I'm currently doing, and I have an office, and I do a lot of counseling, and, and ministry looks that way for me, often when a married couple comes into my office, they willfully disclose within the first five or ten minutes about their communication habits. She may often lead with something like, well, we never talk. He never talks. And he might say something like, man, she is always talking constantly. I don't know what she wants from me. So I want to share a few nuggets on communication. And though this specifically has to do with marriage, um, these techniques are going to be helpful in school, in work, within the context of roommates and friends. If you're a parent, you can use this stuff on your kids. I read several years ago, probably 15 a book by a guy named Jim Peterson called Why Don't We Listen Better? And in it, he talks about a communication model he calls decoding. In the model, <clears throat> there are four components. There's the talker and what was meant, what was actually said, and what the listener expected to hear. And, of course, what the listener actually heard. So let me repeat that again. We've got a talker what he meant to say or she meant to say, what was actually said, what the listener expected to hear, and what they actually heard. And I want to add a couple extra components to this. Decoding is central, right? If you're the listener in a conversation, it's important that you decode that message, that you take what was said and try and figure out what was meant. I know this is a challenge, but if you're the talker in a conversation, you also have to encode the message correctly. Because in your mind, you've got a true message that you want to put out there, but from the brain, through the heart, to the mouth, sometimes it gets a little messed up. The goal of this decoding model is that what was meant by the talker is what the listener actually heard. And there I also want to reiterate um, within this decoding of the message that the listener does, the talker has to encode and transmit the message appropriately. In fact, the way we transmit a message is crucial to how the listener will decode. So if you're the listener, we're all listeners at some point. Right now you're the listener and I'm, and I'm the, the, the talker. And I'm 
encoding a message that I want you to receive. And I could just, I could just email everybody this, right? And then you will receive everything I want you to. But through this form called the sermon, I talk and sometimes I, I mess it up. So, if you're a talker, and if you are encoding a message, I want to give you some tips and tricks from the authors I mentioned on the first Sunday, Les and Leslie Parrott. They're PhDs and marriage counselors, and they write a lot of marriage books. They come from Northwest Washington. And in one of their books, they offer four not-tos of communication. These are four things you don't want to do. Number one is placating. This is an apologetic posture of whatever you want. It is eager to please, and it avoids disagreeing. And I'm going to get to this later. Disagreements are are okay, believe it or not. We're going to talk more about this. Uh, A common example that I'll I'll use for placating is going out to dinner. Right? I shared this example. My wife and I talked about this the other day, how if I say, honey, what would you like for dinner? Let's go out. And she'll say, I don't care, whatever you want. She assumes that I know what she wants to eat, and I'm going to go through my mind and come up with the restaurants and the menus she likes. I'm going to pick one of those that will satisfy her wants and needs and desires as well as mine. However, the whatever-you-want attitude can go really south when he might say, Honey, what would you like to eat? And she goes, Whatever you want. And then he's like, Nachos. I'll make these nachos at home, and I'll finish it off with three bowls of cereal because she said, we'll just do whatever I want. So that is not a scenario that we often think through. If you are a placator and you've got the whatever you want, eager to please posture because you don't want to have uh, a disagreement, you just want to maintain a a harmony in the relationship, you may find out one night you're just eating uh, nachos and cereal for dinner. Here's number two, blaming. This is a fault-finding posture that uses extreme language like you never or you always. It's hyperbolic speech when what is really meant is you rarely or you often. If you are the one in the relationship that uses that language, you never do this, you always say that, think about reframing that, you rarely or you often. That is your job as the talker to encode properly. Here's number three, computing. This lacks emotion and avoids conflict with responses like, what, me? No, I'm fine. Maybe somebody asks you, how you doing? Uh, something, something wrong? Are we okay? No, yeah, it's totally fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's always logical and it's rational to a point. Now, there's a way that this person's response can be a little healthier. Try something like, how am I doing? Not sure yet. Give me some time to process my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, and then I'll circle back to you. Okay? And in that regard, if you're asking the question, how are you, and the person replies with, I don't know yet. I'll tell you later. I'm still flustered. I'm still mad. I'm still figuring it out. You have to give them the space for that. Um, There's an old marriage book from, I think, the early 90s called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. It's written by a guy named John Gray. And in it, he talks specifically about men, but I think it's good for any human interaction. He uses the example of a rubber band and how it stretches out, but the rubber band's natural response is to come back. Anytime somebody in the relationship says, I don't know, I've got to figure it out, and it stretches, 
one person can feel abandoned, feel left alone, think that this person is running away, when really they're stretching out, they've got to figure it out, but the natural response will be to come back. We have to be patient with each other. Here's the fourth one that the parrots talk about, and it is distracting. This position also avoids conflict by doing something other than dealing with the issues at hand. This person is avoiding the intimacy required for honest expression of thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Now, those are some of the parrots for not-tos. Here are three common qualities of successful communication. Number one is warmth. Warmth. The key here is really acceptance. Overlooking the blemish for the sake of the beauty behind it. Unconditional warmth can offer uh, or invite God's grace into a relationship and a situation. Unconditional warmth. That's number one. Here's number two. Genuineness. The warmth or any emotion must be sincere. Here, how you say what you say will communicate the message as being genuine and not phony. Remember, no placating. And here's number three. Empathy. This is about trying to see the world through their eyes. Seeking to achieve a greater understanding of your spouse's perspective or whomever you're working with or dealing with at the time. If you've got kids, you've you got to figure out what, what's going on in their mind when you're, when you're talking to them. If it's about uh, maybe a relationship at work or something like that, same thing. Empathy, trying to see things through their perspective. Here's an exercise for this week, and it's a quick one, and you can write this down or you can revisit this material through the podcast. Recall a conversation you had with each other that led to confusion and pain. And then dissect it. Why? What was said? Look back on it. What went wrong? What will you do differently the next time a similar situation emerges? Okay? Now let's shift gears and get to the fun stuff. Communication under duress. Okay? We talked about communication. Now I want to talk about a little conflict resolution. Uh, I like to think that married couples don't fight, but rather have intense fellowship. This is a very Christian way to describe it, right? Intense fellowship. Another author, a friend of mine, a guy I name-checked in the very beginning of the first week, Gary Thomas, describes conflict resolution as a sacred struggle. And he uses the example of the beauty of Mount Everest and how the Himalayan mountain range would not exist if it weren't for the collision and stress of India crashing into Eurasia, creating this beautiful mountain range. The grinding of two lands is what makes the beauty we know as the spectacular Himalayas. Think back to the first week I used that silly toy, that rock tumbler analogy, and how relationships are designed to grind and to, to smooth over the rough parts. It's a painful process, it's long, but the end result is really good. The same thing can be true with our disagreements. They can be opportunities for growth and beauty, striking a new harmony for a couple, or they can be seen as merely collisions creating strife. Fortunately, Jesus himself tells us that struggle is a daily part of our faith, strengthening us and shaping us spiritually. I want to read Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. And I marked it with, oh, look, one of those three-by-five card love notes I was telling you about for my wife. All right. Luke 9, 
23 through 24. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Listen to the words the Apostle Paul says. He affirms this same notion in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. It's like Paul is saying, no pain, no gain. Jesus and Paul, same page with that message. The scripture is great at pointing us to God during struggles. However, how do we struggle with a spouse? How do we struggle with a friend, for that matter, and still bring honor to God and reconcile the situation at the same time? This is a rich question, and it has many rich answers. The main thing to keep in mind is that conflict is not inherently bad or wrong. It's not a sin to have an argument. If you avoid conflict for the sake of momentary harmony, you're missing out on the growth that can occur through the challenge and struggle of understanding one another better. Remember, the Himalayas wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the struggle. Conflict is natural in intimate relationships, and avoiding it can lead to other issues later on in a relationship. Here's another author, Dr. John Gottman. He runs a thing called The Love Lab. I think it's out of Seattle. Uh, read every book of his by John Gottman. He says complaining is a natural and even healthy part of a relationship. He says complaints are focused statements displaying a negative or hostile emotion that is not a personal attack on the other person. So complaining is okay. However, criticizing is wrong. Gottman describes criticism as less descriptive, a more global blaming of the other person. It is a more personal attack. Here's an example. Personally, I don't like liver and onions. I, every time liver was cooked in my house growing up, it's like this thin kind of chalky meat. I just couldn't get behind it. So as an adult, I, I hate it and I never eat it. And let's just create a scenario where my wife makes for me liver and onions. Now, she also, in real life, hates liver and onions. She would never do this because we're on the same page here. <clears throat> but let's say she makes liver and onions. I can say to her, honey, you know I hate liver and onions. Why do you make it? You always do this to me. You make the stuff I hate. Why do you do this? And now I've criticized her. I've taken the hate and disdain I have for liver and onions, and I've placed it on her. As opposed to complaining which would look something like this. Honey, you know, liver and onions is not my favorite. I just, I grew up not liking it, and I know you kind of enjoy it, but for me, I would, I think it would be a good last meal if I was on, say, uh, death row, because it would actually, I would hate the meal so much, I might welcome, you know, the execution uh, later that night. That, that's, a, that's a way for me to describe my hatred for liver and onions and not placing the blame on her. And then I can tactfully ask her to maybe not make it uh, and things like that. 
Complaining can be a marker of a healthy relationship in that it shows that there's enough confidence in honest expression that your partner won't leave or abandon you for sharing your thoughts. Remember the rubber band analogy. Just because there's a little tension and just because two people separate, that separation is for a time. And homeostasis will be achieved when they come back. I think of the couple who, in a state of nubile bliss, tell me that they never fight. Oh, Chaplain Miller, Pastor Miller, oh, we never fight. The relationship is so good. To which I think there are two reasons for them never fighting. Either there has not been enough time under tension, meaning it's not if but when they will encounter hardships, challenges and strifes, or that they're simply not being honest with each other for fear that the relationship cannot handle the vulnerability of real, authentic emotional expression. So, intense fellowship is not a marriage killer. It happens, it's okay. Complaining may be better than criticizing, but that doesn't mean complaining won't lead to conflict. And I, I want to talk to the guys out there on the couch. Do not start an argument and say, babe, I'm just complaining. Baron said it's okay. I'm not criticizing. Let me say this. It still requires tact. If you're going to complain, you need to have tact. And because in seventh grade, I had to write the definition of tact 150 times in one day, tact is skillfully knowing what to do and say in an existing circumstance. So, if you want to complain, that's okay, but you've got to be prudent about it. You need to have tact. And if you're on the receiving end of some complaints, don't take it personal, unless it's criticism. So, Dr. John Gottman says there are four horsemen of the apocalypse, in effect, Four marriage killers. Criticism is the first one. And here's a quote. Here's what he says. It is hard to respond positively to a criticism since it is an attack on your own personality. If you agree, you're joining into the attack on yourself. If you disagree, you appear defensive. It is very hard to respond constructively to criticism. And here's the remedy. Here's what he says is a fix. The anecdote to being too critical is learning to state your grievance and complaints in a manner that your spouse will not take it as a personal attack. You need to learn to make your criticisms more specific and state them as complaints. You need tact. All right? So the first horseman is criticism. As I go through these, imagine a pyramid where they build upon each other to the point where the relationship can break. This is the first one. This is the most common one. As the toxicity and the unhealthy nature of a relationship blooms even more, then not only do we do criticism, but there can be contempt. Here's what Gottman says about contempt. If your partner is contemptuous of you, it can make you feel somewhere between furious and worthless. It is very difficult to live with someone who insults you. Contempt is a form of psychological abuse. And here's the remedy if this is you. Whichever partner is prone to speaking with contempt needs to replace that habit with the expression of genuine validation and admiration. And beyond that, your marriage needs to be nurtured by the intentional enhancement of the positive to negative ratio. So I want to go back to the three by five cards and I'll talk more ab about that later. But if that's you, if you're thinking, yeah, you kind of do this or, or we do kind of do some contempt stuff, 
then maybe the three by five cards is a way to dig yourself out of that pit. Here's the third horseman of the apocalypse or marriage killer, defensiveness. If you said that you are not defensive, but your spouse is, you may not have been completely honest with yourself. Okay? Defensiveness is almost always a two-way street. And Gottman says, here's the remedy. Calming down is the first order of business. If you are defensive, then you are probably starting or well on your way to feeling emotionally flooded by your partner's expressions of negativity. In this case, you may need to be able to soothe your own self. Okay? Take a break. And I'm going to talk about some rules for intense fellowship here in a moment. Let me get through the fourth one. The fourth horseman of the apocalypse or marriage killer is stonewalling. When someone is stonewalling you, you are likely to feel judged or that your partner is disapproving, detached, cold, smug, or even superior. The stonewaller is overwhelmed by all the negative emotion and wants to withdraw without making things worse. The stonewaller may be trying to calm down and may even be thinking positive thoughts about the partner. And here's the remedy if you're the stonewaller. Like people who are defensive, you need to master your own ways of calming down, to listen and speak non-defensively, and to change your distress-maintaining thoughts to more helpful ones. One of the things I like about Gottman's books is he'll have a lot of self-assessments within the chapters for you to read his material and take a little test. And then he'll kind of give you the answers, like, hey, if you've got five or six threes and two or, you know, two to three fours or how many ones or twos or however the, the test is graded, you might be more prone to this, that, or the other thing. So they're very... They're very revealing books, and they're very helpful when it comes to figuring out marriages, especially marriages under duress. These all build upon one another and incrementally get you closer to the end of a relationship. Um, the further into these you are, the closer to catastrophe you are. I would say that if the small end of the pyramid is... Uh, or, or let's put it this way. If we were to use the pyramid analogy, um, the, the, the tip of the iceberg would be the little thing, and then it would get bigger and bigger with the more that you do until the base is so wide, and that thing is stably falling apart. Okay? Whereas if you were to flip that pyramid around and say, well, we do a lot of complaining, but we do less, uh, you know, we, we, we do... We don't do the criticism, we don't act contemptuous, we're not that defensive, and we do even less stonewalling, then I think you're, you're on the right track and you just want to shore up some of those weaknesses in your own communication style. Here's what I believe, though. Regardless of where in that continuum of, of pain and heartache you are, I do believe that there is hope, especially when it comes to a marriage-type relationship. I absolutely believe that two people committed to living Christianly and being obedient to the Holy Spirit can recover from a myriad of sins, pains, and disasters. Look back at that Colossians text we started with in the first week, and I even read it again today. And look at some of those characteristics that Paul talks about. Forgiveness, gentleness, humility. These may just be some of the marriage saviors needed in difficult times. Now, let's say you're a particularly volatile couple 
and your intense fellowship, it's like frequent, and it's so often that it's overwhelming, and you feel like every time you get together, oh, here we go again, and we're going to fight. I've got a couple of rules for intense fellowship, as cheesy and corny as they might be. These things actually work. If right now your heart is beating in your chest and you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to just, he's speaking right into my situation, take a breath and relax. And at the end of this message, you can look at your mate and decide if some of these will be helpful. Number one, believe it or not, is holding hands. If you were to sit kneecap to kneecap with your partner and hold hands because you know you're going to have a difficult conversation, you may find the overwhelming silliness of this exercise will lead to more laughter and you'll be able to diffuse what otherwise might be a really intense conversation. You might be able to, to approach that subject with a, a tenderness, okay? My wife does this very thing with our kids. My son and daughter, when they fight and argue, she will make them hold hands face-to-face and, and compliment each other while staring, uh, staring each other into the eyes. And it just gets silly and it's a little weird, but... Nobody is hitting anyone anymore. All right. Here's number two. Write down a list of taboo topics. If you find that you're being criticized or there's some contempt or, or things like this that are going on, maybe make a list of the hot-button issues that are particularly triggering for you and share that freely. Hey, every time you mention this or you talk about that, I feel this way. Can we not avoid these things, but maybe I feel like you bring up these things in a way that is, is shaming of me or something like that. Uh, couples will do this often if there's been some, some egregious sin or, or failings in their relationship. And even though there's been the verbal, I forgive yous and I love yous, somebody can often bring that stuff back and sling that mud. And if that's you, you want to not do that. Create a list. Taboo topics, no more mud slinging. And here's the third one. And this is really helpful if you're really volatile, and that means that you just need to take a break. If you're in the middle of an argument, before you throw a pot or pan or punch a hole in the wall, you just need to go blow off some steam, release a little of that PSI from that valve, and that can look like a couple things. That can look like go out and get some exercise, take a walk. It probably shouldn't look like squealing the tires out of the driveway and speeding off. Okay, I've seen this happen with couples, and it feels a lot more like an abandonment. Nobody knows when you're coming home. Have you left me? If you discuss in advance, hey, I think that when things get heated, we need to take a break, then you discuss the parameters of that break. Maybe it's going to have a time limit of no more than 30 minutes. And maybe you're only going to leave on foot and you're going to walk around the neighborhood. Or you're going to go into the basement and do a 1,000 push-ups. I think that's a great idea, but that's me. Um, Whatever taking a break looks like, discuss it in advance. You know if you're those volatile couples, and you know if that will work. All right. Here's the third thing that I wanted to share today. We talked about communication. We talked about intense fellowship. Now, the third and last mysterious distance topic is sex. Honestly, this could be its own series of messages uh, as it's such a complex subject, but I do want to say a few things briefly, mainly to couples that are just starting out, maybe first five years of marriage or something like that. And it goes like this. The fantasy rarely lives up to the reality. And here's what I mean about that. If you were to think back in life when you were a virgin, okay, 
Um, think of, of when you were a virgin, what you imagine uh, maybe now in that state or imagined at that time sex would be like. It was probably upon actually having it didn't exactly live up to the hype. Mechanically, it's pretty simple, but emotionally, sex can be very complex. And on this, I want to refer to David Bowie's Young Americans. He says, it took him minutes, it took her nowhere. This goes back to managing expectations, a topic we dug into in the first week. What I mean to say about sex is that art does not imitate life. All the hype all of the fantasy, all of the media surrounding it, none of it comes close to the real trust and intimacy required for a married couple to enjoy a fun and lasting sexual relationship. But here's what can happen. When some of those unrealistic expectations that we talked about on week one, when those unrealistic expectations have to do with sex, then the dis disappointments we can experience, it could be physical disappointment, it could be emotional, it could be all kinds of stuff going on because it's a complex thing, those disappointments can be internalized. Sex has a way of triggering expectations, insecurities, or some other baggage that we may be bringing into a relationship. I'm talking about things maybe that you did or, or were done to you earlier in life. And that, my friends, can contribute to a wedge in that relationship that can make vulnerability and real intimacy very difficult. So, sex can be a landmine subject, or it can be something that you deal with, just like every other part of life, and you talk and you have some communication around. And as with all intimacy issues, we should never exploit, but rather protect. On our website, um, I have posted, if you go onto the live, there should be a notes section. On there should be a document titled Suggested Marriage Reading List. There's about probably 30, 35 books listed there. A bunch of those books have to do with sex, and I've parenthetically said this one is for couples, for virgins, for folks recovering from maybe some sexual abuse or trauma. This book, or this book might specifically be more geared towards women. There's also other books by Gary Thomas and John Gottman and the Parrots and, and, and all these things that are on that list. And here's what I like to see a couple do, is maybe you buy a marriage book and you guys commit to reading it together uh, here's how I would coach you to read that book. I would encourage you both to read chapter one on week one and then write down the answers to the three questions on the bottom of that document. The questions are simply this. What is one uh, new thing I learned from the reading? What is one thing or behavior I'm going to change based on the reading? And the third question is, what is the thing that when I read it, I thought of you? I really wanted you to pick up this point because it pertains to you, us. It's this thing I've been thinking that this author articulated in a way that I didn't know how. And here's why talking about the content in a guided way is beneficial. Because what can happen with a couple, and this is a stereotype, but... The woman in the relationship may look at the man and say, oh, we read chapter one, we're having a date night, it's pre-scheduled, we're going to talk about the content. So tell me, what did you think? And he would say, it was good. It was a good book, I liked it. It was, it was a good chapter, a lot of good stuff in there. And then he would say, what did you think? 
And then she will have so much language. In fact, she's been saving up her word count all day just for this conversation so she could tell him everything she thought about chapter one and all of this. And so what the guided questions do is extract like water from a stone, some emotional response from the, from the gentleman, but also take everything that she might want to say and condense it into a package that he can actually decode and receive. And so that's a fun way to go through marriage books together as a couple. Week one, chapter one, have a date night, talk about it. Week two, chapter two. Now, a lot of marriage books on the list have questions in there. Please use those and throw away my three generic ones. But if, if that book doesn't, feel free to use my questions. Um, we're going to continue with some worship, and I want to pray really quick. Uh, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I know that this subject is rich and deep and unique to everyone. We don't all communicate the same. We don't all make the same facial expressions when we talk. We don't all have the same passions and enthusiasms for, for things. And, and that's what makes relationships such a many-splendored thing. And, and, and it's a gift that you've given us. You, it's a gift that you've given us, Lord, the ability to relate to other people. Uh, whether the context be in a platonic friendly relationship or a romantic relationship or a parental relationship. We are grateful for the relationships that we do have in our lives. And Lord, we ask that you equip us with the gifts and skills needed to negotiate communication and conflict resolution and, and, and the subject of sex in our life in a healthy and God-fearing way. Now, Lord, continue to open our hearts uh, as we get to continue to worship right now. In Jesus' name, amen.